With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You're basically the best in the world at what you do. So what's what does it take to keep learning at that from beginning to end? Is it repetition? Is it did you experiment? I think you have to have, have the things? desire to keep learning. I think so many people become complacent. Hmm. I think everybody has dreams and ambitions of climbing the highest mountain or running a marathon. And again, it's it's about just taking that step. So many people think about it and then they talk themselves out of it. And that's the problem. I think we are all meant to be great, but we talk ourselves out of being great. So I encourage people, then take the first step. Just do it. You know, so many people, again, talk themselves out of being great because they allow those voices in their head. They accept them. Again, it's about taking those steps. And that's what holds people back is I'm comfortable here. It's fear that holds me back. And if I just take that first step, I would realize it's not that bad. Nick Walenda, I don't even know how to describe you. First off, what you do defies the imagination. You've, you've, what do you call it? You tightrope, you high wire walked over Niagara Falls. You've done it over the Grand Canyon. Uh, I can't even imagine. Well, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And you're announcing this big announcement tomorrow of your biggest event ever. This is going to come out after your announcement. You're going on Good Morning America tomorrow morning. You graciously stop by the podcast before then. Uh, what are you going to announce tomorrow on Good Morning America? So I am taking on the the most daring feat that I've ever attempted. Um, you know, throughout my journeys, I'm always thinking about how I topped the last one and how do I go higher and further and make it more dangerous and more exciting. Uh, you know, with my family history, it's all about P.T. Barnum, right? And uh, so as I thought about that, a volcano is something that I've wanted to do for many, many years. So I finally found a volcano in Nicaragua that is active. It'll be uh, not only am I walking over an active volcano and dealing with everything that Mother Nature has to throw at me with the volcano, but also it's the highest and longest walk I've ever attempted. Over 1,800 feet high, so one World Trade Center, the tallest building in the city. Uh, it's taller than that, it's actually. Uh, and the length is about the same, about 1,800 feet. And and so 1,800 feet is like, I don't know, a third of a mile, roughly? Yeah. And uh, when you say it's an active volcano, what does that mean? <laughs> Well, that means that there is lava uh, in the bottom that is bubbling and boiling and churning and growling, uh, as well as all the gases that come with that as well. So, so won't that create like winds and... It is, yeah. So it's very windy. So I'll be facing similar winds that I did over the Grand Canyon. I had 43 mile an hour gusts while I was walking. But not only that, of course, there's heat. Now I am fairly high, so it dissipates a bit, but I'll be dealing with heat. But it's really those gases that are intimidating because the concern is that I won't be able to see. In fact, there are times where you can't see more than five feet in front of you uh, if you're on the edge of that volcano, let alone out in the middle. Although you have broken the Guinness Book of World Records for longest blindfolded. That's right. 
high wire walking. So that's correct. And part of my training is that actually yesterday in Sarasota, I was training on a wire low to the ground. Uh, it starts about three feet and then there's a catenary, which is an engineering term for a smiley face. So it starts up high on one end, comes down and then goes back up. So about 18 to 20 feet on the ends. And I walked about 700 feet with my eyes closed just to train in case I have to while walking over that volcano. So just for fun, did you break the world record? I don't know how long you walked. Yeah. You... So <laughs> to be honest with you, I did in my backyard, but I didn't record it or anything, uh, but uh, obviously just could. Say, I'm but... going to break a world record today. <laughs> honey, what are you going to do today? I'm going to break the world record for a blindfold, high the wire funny walking. thing is, honey, my wife has several world records too for doing things like hanging uh, under a helicopter, et cetera. So. Yeah, and you proposed to her, right, in, in 1999 during one of your acts. That's right. We were in Montreal, and uh, we were performing in front of about 30,000 people at what was then called the Molson Center. And uh, we closed the show, and I stayed up. She thought something was wrong with me, and I walked out to the middle of the wire and knelt down and proposed to her. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay, there's so many things to go over here. First of all, again, I'm really concerned about your health for the volcano. <laughs> like, what if it heats up? You usually do this on a metal cable, right? Like it's going to heat up Correct. the metal. Yeah. So what it does, to be honest, the heat isn't as much of a concern. In fact, I wear shoes that my mom makes, uh, but it's kind of like a- Who's um, also, an, uh, but I should mention, you've been tight, you've been high wire walking since your mom, she she was six months pregnant and she that's did- right. You did uh, your research. Yeah, yeah that's she's right. high wire walking. So you've been starting since, since the womb. Yeah. So it is. My great grandfather said, life is on the wire and everything else is just waiting. And for our family, 1780s, we started. So this is life. Um, but back to the heat, the, the, uh, the issue with the heat is not so much about hurting my feet or burning me because I have protective shoes that I'll be wearing. Uh, it's more about the tension of that wire will change. So if winds shift, it actually blows the heat away and the, the tension of that wire changes by heating and cooling. So that's, that's certainly a concern. And then there's also the residuals of that gas. The cable has to go up several days in advance. In fact, a week in advance. And because of that, the residuals of that gas and the chemicals that are in the air, it's a, it's a sulfuric acid basically that's in the air. And uh, that could also cause an issue on the cable. So, so Nick, obviously, I mean, you've broken 11 world records. You've been doing this um, officially since you were two years old, right? You had your, your, your right. first high wire walk at the age of two. You've broken every record. You've seen, you know, members of your family sadly pass away from from doing this. Yep. And your, your sister had a big accident a few years ago, but now she's recovered and has since performed. But you've seen a lot of tragedy. Your family has experienced a lot of tragedy. And I'm sure people have asked you this, but are you crazy? Like, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? Everyone asks me that. Yeah, so I'm not, you know, being, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to be unique here. <laughs> I need to know. What's funny is it's, to me, it's, it is my life. You know, as I just mentioned that quote from my great grandfather, I don't know anything else. Like to me, it's, it would be so strange to not walk the wire. My great grandfather lost his life walking wire between two skyscrapers in San Juan, Puerto Rico. He was 73 years old. The reality is this is his passion. This is this was his passion. It is my passion. So to give up your passion as you get older is difficult. You know, it's not like Michael Jordan stopped playing basketball when he retired from the NBA. In fact, he came back because he missed it so much and then retired again, uh, but still has, you know, competitions every year. He does fundraising and stuff and, and, and still clearly plays it, you know, every day from what he says. So, um, you know, Tiger Woods doesn't stop golfing when he's when he's retires. He's going to continue on. I'm sure he may not play in the PGA Tour, but he's still going to play. This is this is our our hobby. This is our passion. This is our life. But it's a little different. You're just talking about sulfuric acid. <laughs> Tiger Woods doesn't yeah. really deal with sulfuric acid. <laughs> You're right. While he's 1,800 feet in the air, 
and and has an active volcano underneath him. He's not like trying to hit a hole in one into the volcano. <laughs> That's true. You know, I, I don't understand what it is inside of me that continues to want to push the limits. Um, do I have a death wish? Absolutely not. Um, again, it, it's just my passion. It's There's something inside of me that drives me to be better. You know, some of the most successful businessmen in the world they they could retire 50 years. They continue to push themselves to be better and do more and open, take on more. Yeah. Uh, and and again, it's about, I think it's just human nature. If you have that type of drive in you, no matter what line of work you're in, you continue to do it. And I just happen to have a very unique history and, and line of, of work for my occupation. Yeah, and I want to I wanna get into the history, but also what's interesting to me about what you do is it's it's all about risk, really. And it's all about not taking risk, but removing risk. So I'm sure right. you don't just throw a rope over the volcano and then start walking on it. You know, even after your great-grandfather died, one of the things your father said was that uh, a non-Walenda uh, kind right. of rigged, rigged the up the, the rope. So they, now it's always a, a member of your family who puts the rope together. Like, you're doing everything yeah. you can um, like you have special, your mom made you special shoes. Yep. You're gonna have a family member put the rope up. You're 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 gonna do so many things to mitigate the risk, and that's a strong lesson because a lot of times, and and you've talked about this. You know, don't don't tell you something that's impossible because then you're gonna want to do it. Yeah. But it's not that you're gonna want to do it. It's that you're gonna figure out all the ways to remove risk that other Correct. people didn't think of. And that's I think right. that's almost a better way to describe well, doing something. Well, I think that, that applies to business too, right? Yeah. So if you're going to open a business, figure out all the risks before you step into that next venture. And that's the same with us. Uh, what we do is a very calculated risk. So I can calculate what the highest wind speeds will be in that area. So I train and prepare for them. I can calculate how strong those gases will be. So I can train and prepare to have a gas mask that will allow me to breathe no problem I, and I also can train to put it on and off I can wear goggles because those gases can burn your eyes so I can put goggles on I walk blindfolded I walk with my eyes closed because what if I can't see in front of me so again I walk on a cable so I'll, I'll walk in training a mile even though it's only 1800 feet a third of a mile um, again all about training and preparing for all of that. So it's very calculated, everything that we do. But, yes, it's risky. And yes, you wouldn't do it. But again, I've done it my entire life. So for me to do it, it's different than for you to do it. I don't even consider myself a daredevil in reality. Um, I consider myself an artist. I'm just showing off these amazing, uh, you know, pieces of wonder, natural well, wonder around the world. And, and by the way, I consider you an artist. It's like an artist slash athlete, but uh, it's, it's artistry in the sense that it's not like you're just going between two random poles, 2,000 feet up, there's like a certain symbolism in all of your high wire acts, like crossing Niagara Falls or, you know, doing something between, you know, the largest skyscraper in the world in, yep. in Chicago and another skyscraper, going across the Grand Canyon. There's like this this symbolism and this artistry to, to what you're doing, to how you're setting up the performance, riding a bicycle across, I don't know, wherever it was that, that with yep. the Today Show or- yep. Newark, yeah. Yeah, and- you know, there's all these things that, that that part is artistry. And then there's, of course, the athletic part, which is training to do all these things. My question on the athletic part is, I could imagine someone winning a world record for being the fastest runner. I could, like, I run, most people run. I can't, I simply can't run as fast. But sure. I can't even imagine going three feet. <laughs> like, that. <laughs> it seems to defy physics, to go on you know, it's, uh, high it's, wire. It's funny. I was in the backyard with my family day before yesterday, Saturday morning, uh, and we were on the wire. 
uh, and we were just playing on the wire. And as I was there, and, and it was my cousin and me, he's about 10 years younger than me, and we were we were running without a balancing pole. We were running back and forth on the wire and just chatting, just like just like we're having a conversation now. And and I said to him, I said, you know, isn't it weird what we do? Isn't this crazy? We're literally bouncing, balancing on a wire the size of a nickel, five-eighths of an inch is the wires that I generally walk on. Um, and and it's, it's funny because I've done it so long. Again, it's life to me. But there are times where I'm walking between two skyscrapers and I go, you know what? This is pretty freaking weird what I'm doing. This is what I do for a living. Uh, but the reality is, again, it's so normal to me that it's very rare that I'll actually step back and look from the outside and go, wow, this is very unique. I think, I think let's say you're going between two skyscrapers. I would imagine that part of the mental challenge is to not think too much. That's right. Yeah, so, it's, so, it's to be be focused. In fact, I often say it's very peaceful be on, to be on the wire because all of the troubles of the world go away. I'm not thinking about politics. I'm not thinking about my, my kids misbehaving. I'm not thinking about any of that for the most part. I'm thinking about being on that wire and staying there and it becomes peaceful. Now, one of the challenges of doing it in your entire life is you can easily become complacent and that's when it becomes dangerous. That's when something will come up, a gust of wind, something like that. Because I've walked thousands of miles on cables, it becomes normal to me. And every once in a while, I'll get in a position where I'll go, oh yeah, man, the kids shouldn't have done that and I need to talk to them about it. I mean, there's been times I was walking over the Allegheny River in Pittsburgh. I was 280 feet up and a wire was rigged in a way it had never been rigged before and it was moving weird and my wire shoes were lost so I had, had to walk in socks and it started raining and every challenge you could imagine. And my kids were young at the time. They're now, they're now uh, two of them are adults. But uh, I looked down at my kids. They were walking on the Fort Duquesne Bridge alongside of me and they were arguing and I was like man you know what I was looking at my thinking of my wife you need to discipline them and I realized oh my gosh I'm I need to pay oh. attention to what I'm doing so that can become very dangerous as well because it becomes so normal how do you even okay when you're looking down at them that's just the most hilarious story I've ever heard you're looking down at them you're 200 feet 280 feet up on essentially a string a thick string and you're thinking this how does that not throw you off balance? Like, because you're looking <laughs> well, at them. Well, that's, again, that's where you go, hey, this? you know, again, part of, part of training is just trying to be distracted. Everything that we can do. In fact, growing up, my parents would, as I trained, they would sneak up behind me and shake the wire so that I would never be caught off guard. That was the goal. They would throw pine cones at us as we were training in the backyard or, or as we train people, we'll throw footballs in front of them and behind them and hit them occasionally with a ball just so it's like, hey, you need to be ready for anything. Um, so again, it is important that we stay focused, uh, but part of training is, okay, how can we walk distracted? You know, when I walked over Times Square, the reason why I chose Times Square in New York City was because of the distractions. Mm -hmm. You know, in order to push myself, I always speak on telling people to step out of their comfort zones and anything's possible, but you got to continue need to push yourself. And uh, you have to take that first step. I think that's the biggest challenge people uh, struggle with, especially in the business world, is taking the first step. So um, I'm, I'm always talking about that. So in order to encourage and inspire people by what I do, I've got to continue to do the same thing to myself and push myself beyond what I think is even the norm or realistic and continue to, to, to go home at the family dinner table at Christmas time and say, hey guys, I'm going to try this next. And my family go, you're going to what? That's my. That's where I get a thrill. My family go, wow, that makes me nervous. Then I know I'm doing something right. Does, does your wife ever say, you are not doing that? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, but I'm usually able to convince her eventually uh, to, to do it or and, to allow me to do it. You know, you made an interesting point about taking the first step because someone could sit on the ground and forever say to themselves, well, here's how you walk on a tightrope and here's how you mitigate the risk and here's how I'm going to do it. And they could picture it and everything. But- there's probably a 
thousand years of difference between actually taking those first steps and just thinking about taking those first steps. And I think that does apply to, you know, obviously you're risking your life when you do it, but it does apply to every area of life that you can't think your way to success. You have to figure out easy first steps to practice something. Like I'm sure you, you, you probably practiced on, you know, like a wire close to the ground, like that's in your backyard, or maybe I I would imagine I'd want to take a bridge and then just make it thinner and thinner and thinner <laughs> until it's like Yeah, a so table. we don't necessarily do that, but we certainly start everything we do, whether it be riding a bicycle or walking blindfold or holding a seven-person pyramid or eight-person pyramid, is down low, two feet off the ground. It's pretty much standard. We learn everything there, and we get extremely confident there, and then we'll take it to a next level. But again, when we train for that, it's about over-preparing. So if I'm training for the seven-person pyramid, when we do that pyramid, we walk out to the middle stop. There's a girl on the top, often my mom, who's st- sitting on a chair, who actually stands up on that chair, sits back down, and we go in. So for our training, we'll stop in the middle, and she'll do that four or five times. And then we'll back up instead of going forward again so we can overtrain. And a lot of that, to be honest, is mental preparation. It's preparing us mentally for when there's an audience, when there's a crowd, when the TV, uh, you know, there's there's spectators watching. Uh, there's all those added elements of lighting and sound and the environment so that we're prepared again, no matter what we know. Hey, if I can do this five times and if I can do it forward and backwards, then I sure as hell can do it once. What's the, what's the most scared you've been during a commercial event? I would say, goodness, um, when I did that, when I broke the world record on the Today Show on the bicycle, uh, about three quarters of the way in, if you watch that video, my back wheel started to slip. That was a point where I was like, oh my gosh. And I remember talking to my dad and and saying, dad, I've got to back up because I have no traction. Um, and my dad's saying, no, you can't back up. And I'm like, dad, I have no choice. And he, I ended up backing up a little and, and gaining momentum. Uh, what happened was the pedal slipped to where they were straight up and down. I had no, no way to, to go forward or back. So I had to back up and use, use gravity to allow me to come back and then go forward. But, um, was there a choice also of abandoning the bike and just gripping the wire? Absolutely. But that doesn't even come to mind in that situation. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if there was an emergency where I had to, but uh, you know, I've trained again, trained to step off of that bike and pick it up and carry it in with me if I have to. Mm. I've never had to do that in a performance, but I trained for it because of situations, scenarios like that, so that I'm prepared. So you have a couple, like you have a plan B, a plan C for, for different right. things yeah. that could happen. Yeah, there's always contingency plans in everything that we do. Because I was reading, I forget what year it was, maybe 1928 or something, where, you know, some member of your fa- the the Flying Walendas, that's yep. the, the name of your family, yep. uh, they went to do an act and they forgot to bring the safety net. That's right. It was and that's the first time they had no safety net and the yeah. crowd goes wild because I think every element, the greater your chance of dying, the more excited yeah. the crowd and the audience gets, which is a sick thing, but it's yeah. true. Yeah, no, that's right. Absolutely. It, yeah. it, and to be honest with you, it's it's the way that I like to perform. I hate using safeties. It's just against who me, who I am and who my family has been. So Because then it's right. not, and I, and I hate to say it this way, it's like if I were to walk across the George Washington Bridge and say, oh, I'm walking, you know, thousands of feet high. Isn't it amazing? No one would think it was amazing because there's actually zero risk. And yeah. where there's the safety net. Other than net, the traffic on the road, I think there's the plenty, of, plenty yeah. of risk. Uh, but, but, and with the safety net, people could think the same thing. Oh, sure. it's amazing physically what he's doing, but yep. okay, he's not really taking a risk. Yeah. Like this, do you ever feel bad there's some element of the audience that is looking to see if you're going to die and maybe even some percentage not that wants you to die? Yeah, of course, <laughs> no. I'm, I'm sure there's a, a percentage that definitely wants to see me 
uh, die. Uh, and, and I would say a larger percentage want to see me fall, maybe not die. Um, but no, I, that's part of what I do, right? I mean, the reason why a lot of people watch NASCAR is not for the checkered flag, right? It's to see the accident. They want to be there. They want to see it. I've often said, look, I don't want to be on, a, on, on another network. I don't want to be on NBC when Nick Willenda's walking on ABC because I want to be tuned in live. If he loses his life, I want to say to the next generation of my kids, hey guys, guess what? I was watching that live. I mean, that's the reality of, of what I do. Uh, and people are fascinated with that. But what I, what I would say as well is, uh, you know, Annette was always taught to us as being a false sense of security. And the reason being is my great-grandfather, Carl Willenda, had a brother who fell into Annette and bounced out and was killed. So the reality is, even though because even though you have a safety device, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily always safe. There's plenty of risks with that as well. Now, again, I think there's another percentage and a larger percentage that says, hey, we're cheering you on. We want to see you make it across. Uh, but again, that that's what makes it dramatic and exciting, right? Is that there is there is risk. And the reality is, you know, even in Times Square, when I've got a tether on overhead, if if I were to fall, it's not, I'm not safe immediately. I, I wouldn't fall to the ground for sure, um, but I've still got to be rescued, etc. And the reality is I didn't make it across. I think most people just want to see me make it from A to B. Uh, yeah. But again, I agree with you. There are definitely, there's definitely a percentage that, that don't want to see me make it, but you know, that that's exciting to me almost because I get to prove them wrong every time. And, and your family was doing this in 1780 in the Austria Hungarian empire. Yep. Your family started doing this. Who was the, who was the first Walenda? <laughs> so, uh, so my, believe it or not, it was my grandfather's, uh, it was his great uh, my great grandfather's great grandfather. And, um, it was on my, on his mom's side. So his father was in the circus as well. And, and what's interesting is I'm married to a pr woman, uh, my, my beautiful wife, Edendita, who was raised in a circus family as well. Uh, so it's often that you marry within. And I think a lot of it is that you understand, they understand each other. Um, but to, to go back, Astro-Hungarian Empire, my family actually started training wolves and bears and lions, uh, performing on the flying trapeze. Uh, but my great-grandfather, when he was born, he was born in 1906. Uh, when he was 12 years old, his father actually abandoned the family. And he loved the circus, my great-grandfather. So he was a great hand balancer. And he had to support his family. What's so he would balancer? actually, so he would does handstands. So, so hand, you know, standing on your hands. Mm -hmm. uh, so he would actually sneak at 12 years old, sneak out of the house at night and, and sneak into beer gardens in Germany because they'd made their way to Germany by the time he was born. And uh, he would set a chair on the table and do handstands and then pass a hat. And that's how he supported his family for years all the while wanting to be on his father's show who had abandoned him. And uh, there was a trade magazine back then. And in that magazine, there was a gentleman named Luis Weitzman. And he was a wire walker. And he said, I'm looking for somebody who's a great hand balancer who's not scared of heights. And my great-grandfather answered that ad and he was sent off. He, he traveled about five hours and uh, by train and, and he arrived. And uh, Luis said, look, I want you to follow me out on this wire and I'm going to do a headstand on the wire and you're going to do a handstand on my feet which is unfathomable. It's hard to imagine. No one's ever duplicated that. But here my great-grandfather was as a young teenager and, and he went out and did this feat and that's how he fell in love with wire walking. And then eventually he created his own trip with his family members because of some issues. Luis was an alcoholic and a, abusive to him and the, the woman that was in the act. So he, he my great-grandfather took uh, the woman, him and himself and a couple other people, guys, one of his brothers, went off and started creating their own wire act, eventually ending up in Havana, Cuba, and that's where John Ringling heard that they were headlining and that he had to see them, that they were incredible. So he made his way over by ship to Havana and uh, went into the show to see my family perform. My family was backstage and they were warming up in costume, getting ready to go on. And the show producer from Cuba came up to my family and said, you know what? You guys have done such an amazing job that you get tonight off. 
My great-grandfather thought that doesn't make sense. But the reality was that show owner knew that John Ringling was in the audience and he knew that John Ringling was going to mm. steal him from the show. So John Ringling, being a brilliant businessman, went back to the ship, paid off the guy and said, hey, I'm getting on, wink, wink. And the next day he snuck in and watched my family perform and signed him to come over to the United States. And that was in 1927. Their first performance was here in March in Madison Square Garden, the old garden uh, here in the city uh, where they um, they performed. And that's where the net was forgotten shipping. And, uh, and they ended up, actually, John Ringling, they put the wire up uh, so high that John Ringling wanted them to use a net. My great-grandfather was against using a net. In fact, wasn't using one in Cuba at the time. Uh, other earlier generations had. Uh, but that uh, John Ringling said, you know what? You guys need to lower the wire. So he actually made them lower the wire because he felt like it was too high. It, it freaked him out. And John Ringling, who had seen everything of his of his time, of course. Uh, and that was their first performance here in the United States, where, where after that performance, they got down and took their final bows and uh, the audience went crazy, whistling, screaming, foot stomping. But my family ran back to their dressing room because they thought they were going to be fired. Because in Europe in those days, whistling and foot stomping was the same as being booed off the stage. Huh. So they were called back and they received a 15-minute standing ovation. And that was their first performance here in the U.S. And so this is this was your great-grandfather, Carl? That's right. Yeah. So when he was um, f- first, uh, first went on the high wire or the tightrope. What do you call it? A tight wire, high wire? Yeah, high, high wire, tightrope. Yeah. Okay, so you first went on the high wire. You said he did a handstand on this guy's feet as feet. he was doing a headstand on the wire. And you're saying that's never been duplicated since? That's correct. Have you ever tried yeah. to do that? So I, I actually have uh, with my cousins. We're working on several tricks that my family did back in the day that haven't been duplicated. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking about it again, Saturday on the wire, me and my cousin, we were just hanging out and I'm like, you know what we should, and we were we were training for that stuff. Yeah, Because it reminds me of uh, skateboarding and how that's evolved. So uh, skating used to be about speed and doing, you know, tricks on a, on a ramp, but now it's about these more tight, concentrated tricks you could do yeah. almost standing in place. Yep. And it's like that kind of difference. Like you could break all the feats with height and, and length, that's right, but then yeah. doing these amazing things also, that's another yeah. frontier yeah. really. I mean, look, the reality is when we start adding layers and pyramids, that's when that's when it gets more and more dangerous. And, and as you mentioned, we had a bad accident about yeah. two years ago where we were attempting to break a world record for the eight person pyramid where we fell. And, you know, thank God I caught the wire. That's what I've been trained to do my whole life. But we did have family members fall all the way to the ground, including my sister. But um, so your sister it, ended it, up it in really, a coma from that. That's correct. And yeah. And what what happened afterwards? She so I mean, she, I know was she, in, recovered, she was but. in a coma uh, for several days. In fact, they didn't think she was going to survive for a while, um, for a short period of time. Uh, she had, she broke every bone in her face. So she has seventy three screws and plates in her face alone. Uh, broke her arm. Broke her calcaneus, which is her heel, which is a nightmare for a wire walker, as you can imagine. Uh, but she not only recovered, but came back. You know, living by those words, my great grandfather. The show must go on. You know, my great grandfather, there was a bad accident in 1962. They were performing the seven person pyramid in Detroit, Michigan. My great grandfather was a part of that pyramid. It was his troop. That pyramid collapsed, and two of my family members were killed. My, my uncle was paralyzed from the waist down. My great grandfather had uh, a hernia and he had several broken ribs, uh, and he snuck out of the hospital and got back on the wire the next day. Oh my and, gosh. Uh, and that's I'm just the way getting my scared yeah. thinking about all this because don't you ever, like when you were in that accident with your sister, is it scary for you the next day to just go back up? You know, it's and- interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm actually just about done. It'll come out in May, but writing a new book on overcoming fear. And the reason is, is because I didn't think fear was even real. I thought it was something you could completely avoid and that you could actually train your mind to not, to not deal with fear. Uh, you could almost uh, absolve it from your mind. And uh, as I 
after that accident, the day after I got back on the wire and performed and I performed for about six weeks straight. And it was sort of just going through the paces, just doing what I do, doing what my family's done, carrying it on, never give up, show must go on. And about six, after six weeks, we'd signed a contract before that accident to come and headline in New York City on Big Apple Circus doing that pyramid. And so I had no choice. I had to get back on the wire. So I took a break and got back and started training again and started having PTSD, reliving that accident. As I was walking out on the wire, I'd watch it fall in front of me mm. and started feeling and experiencing fear in a deep way. Um, so it wasn't until then that I really experienced fear. And, and my book is about the process it took for me to mentally overcome that fear that I was facing. So, so a lot of people face fear in many situations. Now, obviously, I, it's almost it's almost trivial for me to say not as high stakes because let's just assume I'm going to say that before every sentence. Sure. And I'm never going to say that again. But like a lot of people are afraid of public speaking. A lot of people are afraid to ask their boss for a raise. A lot of people are afraid yeah. to walk up to someone in a bar and ask them out. So there's lots of different types of fear. A lot of people and, are afraid to take that first step. It's yeah. about stepping out of your comfort zone, right? Right. So what? So okay, there's two factors there. There's stepping out of the comfort zone and there's dealing with fear. So what are some steps for dealing with fear? You know, uh, for me, it's it's the mental preparation. It's practicing. It's training. It's preparing. Again, it's preparing. So if you're going to, uh, you, you talk about motivational speaking or speak in front of an audience. If you're going to do that, prepare properly. You know, if you do it a thousand times in front of the mirror, and then when you go and speak and speak to one person in that audience, you'll do an incredible job. Uh, but often we talk ourselves out of that. And I think it's it's all about not allowing, you know, we all know that proverbial image of, of the, the the angel on one side and the devil on the other, and and the devil saying, ah, oh, you're not you you shouldn't speak. You're going to sound stupid. You're not going to be good enough. And then there's the angel who's arguing with the devil. Well, I think if if we allow our minds to go there, the angel and the devil unite, and then all of a sudden you're not going to you're not going to step out of your house. Not let alone get on stage and talk to somebody. So it's about not allowing that to happen. And and, and I, I often talk about negative thoughts as a weed growing in your garden. And if you don't pluck that weed out immediately, it'll it'll germinate, spread seeds, and take over your entire garden. Um, and, and I encourage people that when you have those negative thoughts, if I'm not good enough to counter them with, no, you know what though, I'm preparing, I'm training properly. I'll be fine. I'm, I'm, I'm practicing this speech or, or, you know what, I'm going to prepare what I'm going to say to my boss, uh, before I ask for a raise or, or again, I think it's all about, uh, it's not about, uh, it's about not allowing your mind to go to those places. I think so many people just feed off of that and they continue to feed the negativity and feed the negativity. And eventually they believe that and again, it, it can become to the point where, where you're, uh, you know, you'll never step out of your house because of fear. So, so I want to unpack that a little bit because sometimes, because uh, as you've mentioned, you prepare a lot and in every way, like you're for this, you know, walking over this active volcano, you're going to prepare with, you know, high winds. You're going to prepare going blind. You're going to prepare with your body heating up. But one skill that you have that maybe people don't understand is you have this meta skill of knowing what preparation means. You know how to prepare. So sometimes I see people give talks and they think they've prepared, but they've prepared very tightly their talk and they sure. don't know, oh, you need to prepare that there might be music playing in the conference hall next door, or there might be somebody talking in the audience, or there might be, you know, yeah. you might say a word wrong. You might, you know, somebody might laugh at a point where you didn't think so, or somebody might have questions. That's when right. You might, so, so, you kind of have to also build the skill of what it means to prepare. Well, and, yeah, and I think I think you're right. I mean, part of part of what I do when I'm going to go, you know, it's not easy to get permission to walk a wire over Times Square. In fact, 
to, to walk over Niagara Falls, I had to change two laws, one in the United States and one in Canada that were over 100 years old to get permission. So before I go to those meetings, I think about what are all the negatives? Why are they going to say no to this? And before they're able to say no, I have the answer to it before they even ask the question. So again, it's a lot of it is that. Okay, so if I'm going to speak, there might be music playing in the background. What if people are going, what if the sun's in my eyes? What if I can't see my script? What if the microphone doesn't work? What if, you know, what are all the things that I'm going to face? And then again, prepare yourself mentally for that. Okay, I got to be prepared. So play music while you're practicing, while you're rehearsing and, and play random songs and, you know, those sort of things. So mm. again, it's about taking, taking kind of stepping out and looking in and going, okay, where are all the challenges I'm going to face so that I'm prepared for everything that I will face? And then going into it confidently. Yeah, it reminds me of a story. There's a There was a world chess champion in the 1940s, Mikhail Botvinnik, and he used to prepare for matches by having his opponent smoke and blow the smoke right in his face. So because at that time there was smoking in chess worms and he hated sure. smoke. And again, not as high stakes. Chess is not as high stakes as what you do. I had to say it right there. But uh, that was part of his preparation was by having people blow smoke in his face. And again, I think that's an important skill is you can't just prepare what you're going to do. You have to prepare for everything that you don't want to do. That's right. That might yeah. happen. And, yep. and you have to take all that into account. And then there's the preparing the psych, not the physical, not just the physical things that are happening, but also the psychological things. I don't quite know how you plan to prepare for that. Like, let's say you're in the middle of walking across a volcano yep. and you suddenly have negative thoughts. Yep. I don't know how you prepare. So let me give you an example. When I walked across the Grand Canyon, Jim Cantori is a weatherman who, who covers a lot of my events. Uh, even when he's when I'm when I'm out performing somewhere, he'll say, "Hey, Nick, watch. There's weather weather you know uh, coming in." But um, when I was walking across the Grand Canyon, I got hit with 43 mile per an hour winds. That's a lot of wind. No matter where you are on the sidewalk, that's a lot of wind. Sure. Let alone 1500 feet up, no safety, uh, nothing but you know, rocks and a small little sliver of a river beneath you. Um, but immediately your mind, my mind would want to go, holy crap, grab the wire. You better hold on because you're not gonna be able to stay on this wire. But I countered that with my training and preparation. So I went, no, you've trained for 90 mile an hour winds, which was part of my training. You're going to be fine. But again, my mind wanted to go to those places, but because I trained physically properly, I was ready mentally as well. But what if something happens that you didn't expect, like what if there was 120 mile per hour winds all of a sudden, you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't prepare for this. Yeah, well, at that point, I'm going down and holding on the wire. Yeah. Uh, although I have walked in 120 mile an hour winds, but I was walking sideways and there were steady winds. Um, yeah, look, I mean, that is that is part of your training too. Part of my training is a backup plan, which is go down to the wire and grab on and hold on. Um, you know, the reality is you try to think of everything. You may not think of everything. We've been, you know, my family's been stung by bees. We've had birds land on our balancing pole. We've had stuff that you don't necessarily think of, but that training in the backyard of my parents hitting the balancing pole or shaking the wire, et cetera, was that preparation. Um, again, but, you know, to make an analogy, you know, I'm just trying to think of how that would apply. But again, I, I always prepare physically enough so that I'm prepared mentally enough, if that makes sense. And I think they really go hand in hand, both of those. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, 
I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. 
Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So so you also mentioned part of dealing with fear. You're, you're, you're mostly going to feel fear when you're outside your comfort zone. Yeah. And a lot of people correctly or incorrectly. I don't think there's a, a right or a wrong here, but people are you, the, the reason uh, there's a reason a zone is a comfort zone is because that's where you spend most, if not all of your time yep. is comfortable. And we're comfortable right now sitting yep. here talking. So how do you, how do people practice? If you were to recommend to somebody, here's some ways to get out of your comfort zone that are safe and are kind of practice for getting out of your comfort zone, what would you suggest? You know, I'll go back to speaking. If, if you're, if you're not comfortable speaking in public, we'll start by speaking to your family. And, and then prepare that way and continue to step a little bit further. So, you know, for me, it's more uncomfortable to speak when my family members are in the audience than an arena of 15,000 people for some reason, because they're the biggest critics. They know me better than anyone. They can judge me a lot more. They can say when I screw up, people in the audience really aren't going to say it anyways. So, um, you know, start out small, no matter what it is. You know, we start on a wire two feet off the ground. We start out small. It's not comfortable for me to walk across a volcano. Mentally, I've started preparing about this for this event years ago. I've spent time sitting on the edge of that volcano, just kind of preparing mentally for that. But again, visualizing yourself in those situations and continuing to do that. And sometimes it takes years and years. Sometimes it's a small step and it might be starting to talk to your kids and then eventually inviting your husband in or wife and, and then eventually inviting you know the extended family and then eventually spreading to your coworkers and, and building up to it. But it's about taking those baby steps. But as long as you're taking even even if it's the most minute step, you're moving forward. And as long as you continue to move forward, you'll eventually learn that it's not so bad outside of your comfort zone. And, and I think growth begins as soon as you step out of your comfort zone. What are other things someone could do? And maybe you, maybe, uh, maybe this is a random question. Maybe you haven't thought of this, but what are some other things that someone who just has, you know, they're, they're listening to this, they're driving into work at, at their regular job and, you know, they have kind of this, a similar routine every day. What are some ways they could stretch their comfort zone? Let's say I think I think everybody has dreams and ambitions of 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 climbing the highest mountain or you know running a marathon or and again it's it's about just taking that step. So many people think about it and then they talk themselves out of it. And that's the problem I think with society as a whole is I think we are all meant to be great but we talk ourselves out of being great. So I encourage people then take the first step. If you want to climb the mountain, then go to the go to a local gym that has a climbing wall and start right on the ground or you know, if you want to drive a race car, well then then start by going to a race school, you know, just do it. You know, so many people again talk themselves out of being great because they allow those voices in their head, they accept them 
and then they just feed off of the negativity rather than going, you know what, I was made to do this, or you know what, I can drive a race car, or, you know what, I can climb Mount Everest. Again, it's about taking those steps, and, and that's what holds people back is, I'm comfortable here, it's fear that holds me back, and if I just take that first step, I would realize it, it's not that bad. And you know, uh, the other thing that's interesting about all of this is learning. So you learned how to do what you're doing. It's not like you were, even though your family's been doing this for seven generations, even though you were, you were doing this in the womb, it's not like you were born being able to walk that's right, 2,000 yeah. feet higher. So you start at the age of two on a wire that was close to the ground. But what, what's, what do you think people are missing when they learn? So, like you're, you're basically the, the best in the world at what you do. So what's, what does it take to keep learning at that from from beginning to end? Is it repetition? Is it, did you experiment with I think you have to have the things? desire to keep learning. I think so many people become complacent. Hmm. So many people accept the job that they're miserable every morning they get up and they go to work and they're like, I'm going to hell today. But you know what? It, it pays the electric bill and it pays for the mortgage. So I'm going to keep doing it rather than going, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to step out of my comfort zone, which may be, may be leaving financial security, but at least you're going to be happy in the end by doing it. So, and, and again, you, you don't know if you'll fail until or if you try. And I'd, be, I, I'd, feel a, I'd sleep a lot better at night knowing that at least I tried rather than saying, giving in to those thoughts and saying, I'm not going to take the first step. But, but you're right though. Like, let's say someone tries to says, okay, I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to start a business. And let's say they've mitigated risk somewhat. They, while they're at the job, they found, they have an idea. Maybe they made a prototype of the idea. Maybe they uh, got some first customers. Maybe they raised some money. So they did like five or six things to mitigate risk. Now they're doing it. And now they're scared. <laughs> like that's scary. Finan financial insecurity is very scary. I get it. I get it hundred percent. It's about taking that first, first step, right? It's that leap. Look, I mean, growing up, it was the starving artist. My, my great grandfather said one day you eat the chicken, the next day you eat the feathers in the circus. So that was very true. I mean, my parents struggled financially growing up. I remember dealing with bankruptcy, et cetera, or they did and, and struggling with that. But here they had the passion of doing what they did. So I've, I've been on both sides of it. So I get that. And, and it is scary, but it's about taking that leap of faith and doing it again. If you don't try it, you'll never know. So right. I encourage people do it. You know, it's smart to have a backup plan. Don't be foolish. Don't dive in head first. Again, I train and prepare, but you just said they've taken those steps. Uh, and sometimes it's about, you know, so many people are on the cusp of success of what they consider success and they immediately turn around and go, you know what? Uh, but it would take that leap and I just can't do it. I'd yeah. rather be the one to take the leap. One, one friend of mine who does, is in a risky field, which it all sounds blase compared to your field though, but he always uh, says, uh, in the, if he gets nervous in the middle of what he's doing, he just reminds himself everything's going to be all right. Yeah. And that's his kind of mantra to kind of just calm down. Yeah. And so, so when I'm walking the wire, I look to the solid rock on the other end, literally Grand Canyon or this volcano. I don't think about, you know, I try not to focus on the distractions. I try to focus on that. So I think if you can put yourself there, in fact, leading up to, to these events, I go, okay, it's 35 minutes. That's not a lot of time. In the scheme of things, that's nothing. So it's going to be rough. It's not going to be fun for 35 minutes, but after 35 minutes, you get to celebrate. So I think it's about seeing that. I think it's about visualizing that. I think there's, you know, the, the mind is a powerful tool and it's about visualizing that success and going, okay, I, I am going to get there. I am going to get to that other side, even though there's all these problems, all these distractions as I'm making this crossing. And as you're, as you're learning, okay, so it's, so it's all about taking those first steps and, and preparing those first steps and learning the basic techniques and so on. But then is it more about, for you, is it more about repetition? I just need to do this over and over again? Or is it more about, 
what can I experiment with? Like, what can I do new this time that I didn't do yeah, before? Yeah, absolutely. Look, everything, every setback I've had in life, I go, okay, how can I change it to make it better? How can we learn from the seven-person pyramid falling? How can we learn from the eight-person pyramid falling a couple years ago? You know, again, it's about kind of taking everything. That, but, but I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for all those setbacks. You know, that, that's what makes me who I am. And, and that, to me, um, is, is uh, more fulfilling than anything, is looking back and going, hey, I went through that horrible time, but that's what got me here. And if I didn't go through that time, I wouldn't be who I am and I wouldn't have gotten to this point. So, so is it more about, like when you're learning and when you're dealing, for instance, with those, those setbacks, is it more about repeating that, that setback over and over until you get it right? Or is it more about uh, trying to incrementally make it even a little harder like again, experimenting, doing something that you haven't done before, so then the old thing becomes easier. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever looked at it that way. It makes a lot of sense. It's almost but... like two dimensions. One's hours of work, the other sure. is how many experiments. Yeah, I mean, I think that people that are driven just automatically want to do the experiments, right? Mm -hmm. They always want to continue to push themselves. Uh, so that that is within me. Now, now, there are a lot of people in the industry, the circus industry, if you will, which is the way I was raised. I've sort of stepped out of it and kind of changed my career path, but they just do the norm. They they just continue to do the same thing. And, and they do okay. Uh, but I knew, uh, you know, in my life, I knew that if I stepped out of that, if I stepped out of that comfort zone and, and kept pushing myself and exploring, that I would be able to take it to a whole new level. And um, again, there, there's a lot of great wire walkers. In fact, I would tell you there's probably a lot of great wire walkers that are greater than me. But, that's but, about, but they're not brave enough to take that first step. See, what you just said is very interesting. And, and I'm seeing this more and more is that it's not, it's not good enough to be better than someone else. Because for instance, for me, the man on the street, I can't tell. I, I'm sure I can't tell. If someone's a better high-wire high walker than you, let's say they're 10% better than you, which might be significant to you, and you could see all the subtleties and the nuances, how they're better than you. I won't be able to tell that they're better than you. But if they're not going over Niagara Falls, I can say, well, he, he went over Niagara Falls, so I don't know about this yeah. guy, but this guy, Nick, went over the Grand Canyon. Yeah. So different sometimes is more important than better. That's right, yeah. Different and willing to take that risk, willing to take that first step. Again, there's a lot of people that are, that are great. I think everybody's great in one way or another, but so many people are so scared to take that first step. I deal with it in my life. You know, one of my biggest dreams is to reinvent the circus. You know, it's an industry that is an age-old art, dates back to the 1600s, and and it it has been it was the the greatest form of entertainment. It came to your your home. It was an entire city that would be set up within hours, and you'd come in and it'd be a magical experience. And this this world that that is my my um, my history and my passion has has sort of died by the gone by the wayside. Look, Ringling Brothers shut down, etc. So my dream is to do that. And I, I'm often preaching to myself, like, look, you speak about it all the time, taking that first step. So you got to take that first step. And I'm in the process, in fact, in the car ride here, of, of buying a European tent because it's been a dream of mine to open up my own, my own circus. But again, there's, there's huge risks with that. Uh, what if it's a failure? It's attached to my name. Uh, what if it's not exciting enough? What if it's not thrilling enough? What if it's not reinventing? You know, How do you reinvent an age-old art and make it exciting and relevant to a new generation? That's a scary, scary project. So how, how both, do you? Both like, financially, mentally, yeah. uh, you know, uh, all of it. I mean, it, it'll take everything everything in me to do it. Like but, what's the first thing you think what you think of when you say to yourself, I'm you know, going to make think, this different? I think a lot of it is, is involving technology for one. Uh, clearly, I've been blessed with a huge platform and a brand, um, but I still, again, talk myself out of it. But I, I think it's about involving technology. Um, I think that um, 
you know, there are so many opportunities to do something very, very unique. You know, my challenge has always been, how do I get the, if I could get the audience, so in, in a big top, if you will, a circus tent, if I could get the audience on the wire with me, it's a total different world. Oh my because gosh. seeing it from up there is totally different. And How what's interesting is as, as my career has progressed, I still will go back. I've said I've done these big things because my passion is under that big top. There's something intimate. There's something special about me being on a wire 30 feet, 40 feet up, which is still uh, death-defying. The reality is I've lost seven family members from that height. But being able to look you in the eyes from the wire, there's something special about that. So um, again, it's how do I get the audience up there on the wire with me? Uh, and, and obviously you can do it with cameras, et cetera. But really the, the goal is how do I get, how do I get people's heart to drop? Like they're going off of over, over the highest hill on a roller coaster, but while they're watching a performance and, and that's the challenge that we face. And, and it's about bringing in the right team. Look, I, I admit that I'm, I, when, you know, I admit, I admit my strengths and my weaknesses, a lot of success is about surrounding yourself with people that are much smarter than you. Uh, and they'll help you get to that next level. And that's really what it's about to me is comprising the right team to where we can do that, where we can figure out, okay, how do we get the audience's heart to drop? How do we get them up on that wire with us? How do you? It's, it's a process that we're working on right now and it, and it isn't easy, but maybe you can help me with that answer. I don't know because I'm just ideas? picturing it right now. I would never go on that. <laughs> well, rope. I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily bringing them up there. Although I have brought people up and sat them on my shoulders and walked across the wire before to give them that experience. That would kind of be hard to do every night with thousands of people in the audience. But um, I think it can be done with technology. I think there's like ways to do it. Yeah, I think I think that'll be a part of it for sure. Yeah. You should almost when you're walking across this volcano, wear some sort of goggles to at least record the experience, so someone yes. could experience that exact walk. Yeah, so that is that's another another project that I'm working on is trying to to uh, basically create simulators where people will actually be able to take these walks with me. And I'm just curious, just technically, what what is the walk like? Do you put your how do you put your feet on the rope? Like, what so, do you do? Yeah, so the the wire actually goes across my big toe and then down my foot and uh, through the center of my heel. So and and it's really about sliding my feet. I slide my feet because the wire is often moving underneath my feet. And if I were to just step and that wire to shift to the left as I'm walking with my right foot or stepping, I could miss the wire and fall forward. So it's about sliding my feet. So I, I literally will, will put my, my left foot on the wire. My right foot will come across the front of my left foot and slide right onto that wire. And I, I take every step that way. Um, and you get into sort of a cadence and a rhythm that can be good and bad. In fact, the Grand Canyon, I had to change my cadence several times because what you do is you, you create a pattern in the wire and that pattern will grow and grow and grow like a sound wave. And uh, you kind of have to change your speed and, and your step size so that it actually takes that out of the wire. I feel like there's a metaphor there somewhere too about getting <laughs> sure. into a routine. There's a lot so of metaphors much. with what I do. Well, and also when you're when you're two years old, you're learning. Your your muscles are learning as you grow. If someone were to start now, like you're about to turn 41, right? That's right. So so uh, if someone were to start, let's say at the age of 41, it's going to be a different experience. Do you think it is possible to 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 start at the age of 41 and learn to, you know, do, learn how to tightrope? I do, yeah. I, I believe that anybody can do anything in life if they set their mind to it. Obviously, there can be physical limitations, but the reality is anything's possible if people are willing to to want, have the desire to learn. Now, could you, could I get you to the point of walking across the Grand Canyon? Maybe not, but I could get you on a wire 
20, 30 feet off the ground, I bet. Uh, again, a lot of it is about mental preparation more than physical when you do what I do. Certainly the physical part is a big aspect down on the ground, but you learn the physical part and go, okay, this is great. And I've, I've trained a lot of people. In fact, uh, we have a circus school that we work with and we train with, uh, and it's one of our passions is kind of pass this on to other generations. And uh, we've trained them incredible. I mean, I'll have wire walkers that are like incredible down low, put them up 10 feet, 15 feet, done. Never get on a wire again. Wow. Well, because then there's the combination of not only the physical feat of balancing on the wire, but there's the fear of heights if they have that. That's right. So yeah. now you have three kids. Uh, you've seen, as you mentioned, seven family members die. And obviously this is, you know, ingrained in you and ingrained in your family that you're going to, that you do this, but you have three kids. If they want to do this and you know there's a chance they could die doing it, how do you think about it? How do you? So my two oldest boys are in the military. So that should answer your question. The reality is I'm more nervous about them in the military yeah. risking their lives because I know what I do is so calculated. Uh, but, I, but it is risky, of course. But I want my kids to, of course, be happy in whatever they choose, whichever direction they choose in life. So growing up, we didn't put them in front of the audience at a young age. I had that bite at a young age. Two years old, I was in front of an audience. So it was already, hey, I love entertainment. I love being in front of a crowd. Um, so it's hard to give it up at that point. We kept them out of the spotlight, sort of. They performed a little bit, but very, very rarely on short periods of time uh, in front of an audience, but really had them focus on school and sort of what we would consider a normal life, if you will. And um, and because of that, they they decided, now, mind you, they're all incredible wire walkers, um, but they yeah, decided just, to go to different direction. Let's just be clear with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, really, really good. I mean, my boys are solid as can be. I, I wish they would work with me because I trust them more than some of the other people that I do pyramids with. But the reality is, um, again, you know, everything, everything we do is taking a risk in life. Whether we get in an elevator, an elevator cable can snap, it happens, and people, elevator sure. will fall and lose their life. Airplanes crash. People get run over on sidewalks. The people choke on food. You have to eat. People choke on water. You have to drink. The reality is, we all take risks every day. Uh, they're just not seen as being as bold as what we do. Because Again, the statistics, we, you've had seven family members. Yeah, yeah, but that's right. But if you look at at the odds of how many wire walkers there are, the odds are still on our side in reality. But I, I do understand what you're saying. Yes, it it is scary to see your kids risk their lives. But again, I was more concerned when they joined the military. I've got a marine and a soldier in the army. I was more nervous about that than them saying, "Hey, we're going to carry on wire walking." Yeah, because like even when you, so you, so uh, your great grandfather Carl, he died uh, walking between these two skyscrapers in Puerto Rico, and you did the same walk just to That's kind right. of defy what happened to him. And then right afterwards, you had to call, I guess, your grandmother, right, yeah, because yeah. she was too afraid to look at yeah. you, watch while you were doing sure. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Obviously, that was a very emotional walk. It was something that sure. I wanted to do my whole life, seeing these videos of my great-grandfather, you know, losing his life. And my mom actually joined me on the wire. But yeah, I mean, that is, um, look, the, the reality is, yes, what we do is very dangerous, but to us, it's very calculated again. Uh, and it's also our passion. So I can't imagine not doing what I do, even though there is so much risk. So when's the, when's the Nicaragua walk? When's the volcano so walk? So it'll be March 4th, live on ABC. March 4th, so it's like in a month. That's right. Month and a, a half. over a month, yeah. Oh my gosh. And you're all ready for it, basically? You have to I, be at this I, point. I, absolutely. So training for it uh, right now, of course, specifically for that. Uh, and of course, have another another six weeks to be training and preparing for it. And a lot of that training, again, is the mental preparation just as much as, as the physical. Yeah, and again, I guess the, the mental preparation, 
is figuring out what all the risks are and then just do you kind well, of- Well, and also visualizing myself making that walk. Again, I've spent a lot of time there mm -hmm. and it is extremely intimidating to look from one side to the other when you can see the other side through the smoke. Will you feel a little nervous like seconds before? Without a doubt. Do you always feel nervous like right before you go? Absolutely. I think every great entertainer, whether they're walking a wire or singing on stage, they get nervous before they get on stage. It's part of being a great entertainer, I think, because part of that is making sure I deliver for the audience as well. Now, mine is probably twofold because I want to make sure the audience is thrilled, but I also am risking my life. And I guess the nervousness must, I mean, this kind of gives permission to be nervous. Like the nervousness is part, you know, releasing just enough adrenaline to get, to, to get you that superhuman yeah, capability. Yeah, the challenge is to uh, hold that adrenaline back as long as I can so that it doesn't kick in until I'm out on that wire. The reason why my great-grandfather lost his life was because the wire was rigged improperly, which caused him to go down and, and, and hold on. But really what, what the reason why he couldn't hold on is because he was 73 and his heart was not able to accept the blood pressure that adrenaline pushed into his heart because it was so normal to him. He didn't get a rush. I'm sure he got nervous, but again, it's that respect. You know, you call it fear, I call it respect. So it was nerves of respect, like, hey, this is dangerous. But for him, it was so ordinary to get on a wire that it was the same as walking on the ground on a sidewalk. So because of that, uh, he it wasn't like he got a big adrenaline rush at that point at 73 years old. He'd walked again thousands of miles on a wire. So because of that, uh, his heart wasn't ready for the adrenaline and that blood pumping through his heart. And it caused him, they believed, to have a heart attack. And that's why he actually fell to his death. What do you do for fun? <laughs> um, I spend time with my family. That's fun. I'm always traveling and always touring. So whatever my my teenage boy, uh, daughter and son and then my 22-year-old, my whatever they want to do is is fun to me at this point in life anyways. And I, I can't, do you ever argue politics with anybody? <laughs> not, you know, not really. It must be like, that must be like so character. not important. Yeah, it, it is. It, you know, you, I think you learn that a, there's not a lot you can control. Of course, I, I do my best to, to be a good role model, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the reality is, other than doing our part, you can't change. There's not a lot you can change, right? So live life and enjoy life. Because I think so many people are so worried about politics that they can't relax and enjoy life. Uh, or so worried about the stresses of their kids in the military or those sort of things that they don't enjoy life. So I've sort of learned to kind of take a deep breath and go, you know what? And part of that is because I do risk my life a lot, right? So t enjoy every moment. Uh, you know, don't take any minute for granted. Yeah. Uh, and I think you can live life a lot freer that way. Well, Nick Walenda, A, thanks for coming here. B, good luck walking <laughs> over a volcano in a month. C, people could find you at uh, nickwalenda.com. It's N-I-K, you know, W-A-L-L-E-N-D-A.com. And I don't know, anything else you want to... That's you, it. You the, there's nothing bigger to promote than you walking <laughs> over a volcano. That's like the That's biggest right. event March, ever. March 4th on ABC, and then I'll have a book coming out in May as well. Okay, will you come back for the for to talk about fear when you're in the book? Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thanks, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really I learned a lot and I appreciate it. Thank you. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.